0: Hey, fellas, I hope this video finds you well. It is always good to be with you, albeit uh, virtually, but it's always good uh, to be able to study God's life-giving word with you. Uh, Today's passage, if you've read ahead, is a little bit of a strange one, but it's highly encouraging. So I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 31. We'll go through uh, chapter 30, stopping in verse 24. As you're turning there, today's passage, again, an odd one, is yet another story of unfaithful Jacob needing to be broken by God in order to be used by God. Uh, One of the strange things about this passage, though, is that the author, Moses, does not spend a whole lot of time talking about Jacob. Rather, he focuses on Jacob's two wives, uh, Leah and Rachel, uh, two people who also needed to be broken. Now what's really encouraging about this passage is that God is showing us that that he uses such broken people for his kingdom purposes. And even more encouraging, it's for such broken people like you and me that this message was uh, that this message was written. This message is a message of hope for broken people like you and I. So let's read it in hope, starting in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. Hear the word of God. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore another son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name will be called Levi. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she uh, uh, bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children lest I die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, okay, well, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. She's trying to justify her actions here. She says, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah, like Rachel had done, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, "'Happy am I, for women have called me happy.' So she called his name Asher. Much later, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, he would have been older by now, five, six, seven years old, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, "'Please give me some of your son's mandrakes.' But she said to her, "'Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband?' Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Kind of a strange conversation. We'll get to that. Rachel said, Then Jacob may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. But God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I've given my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Many years later, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, "'God has taken away my reproach.' And she called his name Joseph, saying, "'May the Lord add to me another son.'" This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce makes the observation, or rather the illustration in his Genesis commentary Uh, about the uh, mighty Rhone River that we see in France. And this is what he says. He says, high in the mountains of uh, central Switzerland where the Grimsel and the Furka Passes come together. It's in that meeting place that we have the source of the Rhone River. However, that source, that river does not start out mighty high up in the mountains. He says uh, it begins in that source place, it begins with melting ice from the Rhone Glacier. It just starts off off as little trickle, little beads, little droplets that that begin to pull together and and it forms a, a not impressive tiny stream. But eventually, that tiny stream builds a little bit of momentum and makes its way down the mountains into the valley of Lake Geneva where eventually, over time, it spread out and formed Lake Geneva. From there, it flows into France to become the great river that that most people know. What's even more interesting, as we know, the Rhone River uh, feeds into the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean Sea, as we know, mingles with the mighty Atlantic Ocean. Something small and insignificant and tiny eventually becomes something grand and powerful and great. Boy says this, he says, the growth of God's covenant people was a lot like that. It started off small. It started off with God uh, calling Abram out of Ur. And we remember back in Genesis 12 when that happened, God gave Abram this, this amazing promise that, that he was going to bless Abram, that Abram was his posterity would be a great multitude, um, so vast beyond measure, more than there are stars in the sky, sand on the, uh, on the seashore. And God was going to build him into a great nation through whom he would bless the rest of the world. And not only that, he would take him to a land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the thing, it took a while. It took years, not only years, not only decades, but even generations. In fact, we've come to the third generation now, Jacob. Jacob just got married, he's older, he's advanced in in years. But still, there's not a whole lot of children around. And people must have been thinking to themselves, where's this great multitude that God had promised our ancestor Abraham? Well, it's in this passage that that great river begins to widen. What we have here is the genesis of the 12 tribes of Israel. God is on the move and he's doing something great and grand and powerful. He's making this tiny family into a great multitude. And as we end with the last son, Joseph, Moses is pointing the original audience, Israel, forward to, hey, guess what? That promised land, Joseph, that promised land's on the horizon, so get ready. So, what we have here is the people of God forming. It's becoming this great nation. However, here's the deal. As we just read, it wasn't a pretty picture. Uh, The genesis of this family was anything but a Norman Rockwell painting. In fact, if anything, it was more like a dog kennel. I mean, it was crazy. There's just wacky stuff that happens in this passage, shameful things, right? Um, We have um, uh, faithlessness, we have backstabbing, uh, backstabbing. Um, we have treachery, we have the gross sin of polygamy. I mean, think about how humbling it must have been for that original audience to hear plainly their unvarnished history unbelievable. I mean, it wasn't heroic. It certainly wasn't poetic. If anything, it was a Jerry Springer episode, right? It was humiliating. Now, the only reason that we have it written down this way, brothers, is because this is how it happened. It's true. In fact, that gives a whole lot of weight to the historicity of of this tale. We have it this way because it's true, and because it's true, you and I can know a few things. First off, we can know that God will fulfill his promises no matter what. No matter the blunders and the failings of his people or what happens to the world, God will fulfill his covenant promises. God will build his kingdom in spite of the failings of his people. And not only that, God will work in the hearts of his failing people. We actually see both of those things in this passage. And that's why it's so encouraging. In fact, the main takeaway from this passage is that God is calling each of us as his broken people to simply stop, to stop flailing about as Rachel, Leah, and Jacob did, to stop worrying, stop pestering, stop um, flailing about, stop looking to yourself and other things for rescue. Stop all of that and trust God. Rest on the sure foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust God because he is trustworthy. And we're going to see that played out in a number of ways as we look to the individual characters of this story, starting with Leah, then Rachel, then we'll wrap up briefly with Jacob. But first off, let's look at Leah. Now, as we look to Leah, there's several things that we can learn about God, several incredible truths. But before we look to those, Let us just think about where Leah was emotionally. Uh, She was in a bad place. Uh, We don't have to look far to understand what she might have been feeling. We see in verse 31 of chapter 29, uh, we see that Leah was hated. Um, She felt hated. Now, that word hated, it's not how we might use the word hate today. Okay? Um, Another translation is unloved she felt unloved by Jacob Uh, so she felt unloved by the one person that was supposed to make her feel loved the most in this world and because of that she felt hated now hopefully none of us are in a marriage that uh, that could be described like that and assuming that we're not uh, I saw a diary or, or uh, uh, an entry in a diary of another famously unloved wife. Her name is Sophia Tolstoy, uh, who was famously unloved by her husband, Leo Tolstoy. And this is what she says in her diary uh, She said, It is painful and humiliating. I am nothing. I am nothing but a useless creature with morning sickness and a big belly and a bad temper. A battered sense of dignity, and a love which nobody wants. It drives me insane. It seems to me that is how Leah felt. She loved her husband, but she was deprived of her husband's love to such a degree that she felt hated. Uh, Now, brothers, there's a a lot of reasons that we can't exactly identify with Leah exactly for obvious reasons. Uh, But feeling unloved and unwanted and unnoticed and uncared for is not one of those reasons. There are many things in this world that make us feel that way. In fact, our culture has a tendency to make people feel like the other to make people feel unloved and unwelcome and unaccepted based off what you look like, uh, how much you weigh, where you're from, how much money is in your bank account, where you grew up, who your family was based off things like that, you and I are dismissed or unnoticed. And we know how badly it can feel to feel unloved and even unnoticed, how terrible that is. Some of you might be in that place right now for whatever reason. If you are, here's the first amazing truth that we learn about God from Leah's part in this whole story. God is lovingly committed to his people. And again, we see that in verse 31. In verse 31, at the very beginning, it says that the Lord saw Leah. The only reason that we know that she was hated in the first place is because God tells us God saw Leah and opened up her womb. Now, brothers, it is no small thing to be seen by God. Uh, To know that God sees you ought to change your entire disposition. It is no small thing to be seen by God. It is simply more uh, than than evidence of of knowing that God has compassion on us. It's more than that. It, It certainly includes that. And it ought to be enough. We remember how important that was in our study with Hagar earlier in Genesis. <clears throat> but it's more than that. It, it tells us um, also that it reinforces the idea that God particularly loves the outcast and the unnoticed, the other and the unloved. God loves all sorts of people, brothers, but it's reminding us that God has his Eyes set upon that he particularly loves the outcast and the unloved and the unnoticed by others. He identifies with them. So if you're feeling that way or if you've been made to feel that way, like Leah, brothers, you are in good company. But even more than that, it shows us, too, that God is the true bridegroom, the true husband that we need. He was certainly showing himself to be the the true and greater husband that Leah needed. Because in these first couple of verses, the end of chapter 29, God uh, was being to, to Leah the husband that Jacob wasn't. Not only did Jacob not love Leah, he hardly noticed her. Again, it was only because God tells us that we know Leah felt this way. Jacob, her husband, wasn't looking out for her. Jacob not only did not love her, he simply didn't notice her. But God did more than that. God set his eyes upon her. Why? Because he loved her like a true, committed, and faithful husband. And that's important, brothers, because as Christians in Christ, this applies to us too. We, as the church, are the bride of Christ, Paul tells us. He sets his eyes upon us, God does. He loves us more than we could ever possibly love ourselves. He cares for us more than anybody else ever has. And He is committed to us as our husband. You want to know what kind of husband Jesus is? Well, just look at some of the things he says of himself in the gospels. One of my favorite is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 29, where, where Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. The high king of heaven describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Now, what does that mean? In layman's terms, it means that Jesus is far more accepting than we could ever give him credit for. We don't have to run through uh, obstacle courses. We don't have to jump through hoops. He's far more accepting than than we could ever give him credit for. And he who is holy and majestic and all powerful, even though that's the case, more so than any other person in history, is more approachable than we could possibly imagine. He made himself nothing to identify with those of us who are nothing. You don't have to fill out a resume. You don't have to wait in line, you don't have to bite your nails. All you simply have to do is answer his call to come to him and he will embrace you like a committed, faithful husband, the husband that he is to his bride, the church. He's committed to you and he's committed to his people. The second thing that we see about God in this is that God graciously draws his people to himself. Now we see God actually do this in two different ways. Uh, with Leah. First off, God used her deprivation. Remember, she was deprived of love from her husband. At first, she didn't have any children. She didn't have a family. Um, She was miserable, yet still, God used her misery to bring her to himself. Remember, she came from a pagan background. She was not raised in the covenant family as Jacob was, but God used her misery to bring her to himself. Now, we see that played out in the way that Leah names her first four children. We can't really go into great detail with all those kids. That would take us forever. But a couple important notes. First off, with all four children, uh, Leah attaches the covenant name of God, Yahweh, to those names, either in the etymology of those names or in her explanation of why she named her children the way that she did. She references the covenant name of God, and that's huge. The second thing, even though that she does that with the first three children, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, it seems that she is still holding out hope that with the birth of these kids, that her husband, Jacob, would would come to love her or at least recognize her as the mother of his kids, be attached to them in some way. But everything changes when we come to that that fourth child, Judah. What Judah means is, may Yahweh be praised. And that's the only thing that she says. When that fourth child is born, she is in a place where she seems to be free from the longing of her husband's love. No longer is she singing Uh, songs of lament. She has defiantly come to a place where she says, I don't care about that anymore. Now I will praise my Lord. How amazing is that? Knowing her background and what she's been through and what she's done. She's coming to a place where she is freed from her idol. And whether her idol is just Jacob himself or the need to be loved by Jacob, she is freed from that, and she has come to know the all-satisfying love of the true and greater husband, Yahweh. And she praises him. God used her suffering to bring her to that place, as God often does with us in our own sufferings. It's in our deepest sufferings and mournings that God usually does his greatest work in our hearts. And that's what he did with with Leah here. However, God also used Leah's failure. Unfortunately, as we move to the next chapter, Leah, like so many of us, even after she had reached that plateau of, of having faith in Yahweh, she backslid and started sitting again and, and idolizing Jacob again. And even engaging in some grosser sin than she'd ever done before. If you look at verses uh, 9 through 18 in chapter 30, she got caught up in this ridiculous birth war with her sister Rachel, which we'll talk more about in a second. But she started doing all these very unpleasant things, and you could see that it took a toll on her. This is a little caveat. It took a toll on her. Because with those subsequent children in the middle of these birth wars, their names had nothing to do with the covenant name of Yahweh anymore. In fact, there was pagan connotations attached to the names of those children, like like Gad and Asher, uh, talking about luck and, and happiness, worldly happiness. It seems as if she has taken her eyes off of God altogether, and she has forgotten where true happiness and satisfaction is found. She's floundering again as we get into chapter 30. However, if you look at verse 17 verse A, we see indication that somewhere in there she started seeking the Lord again because it says that God in spite of all of her sin in 17A listened to Leah. Now of course she wasn't perfect. She had um um you know, she was trying to justify some of her actions, but it's clear that she that she sought the Lord finally at some point and and God listened to her. God reached down into the muck of her life and used even her failings to bring her closer to himself. And we're going to see that big time in subsequent weeks, especially when she rejects her pagan father Laban and all of his uh, pagan background in order to follow Jacob and the God of Jacob. But nevertheless, God reached down into the, the muck of her life. And by grace, he reached her up and gave her what she most desperately needed himself. Brothers, Leah was in a very bad place. She was in a bad situation and God did not completely change her situation, but God would completely change her heart. By grace, God broke her and God continued to break her of her addiction to find satisfaction in places other than God. In His grace, He brought her to himself, the true husband, and brothers, as our true husband, God will do the same for us too uh, because he loves us more than we could ever be loved by anything or any person in this world. Now, we're also a lot like Leah in that even as Christians, even knowing that truth, we often take our eyes off him and seek to be satisfied and loved in other places. We hate it, but we do it still. The Bible actually gives us a remedy for that. And this is a little bit of a caveat. Uh, Whenever you're feeling the pangs of your deprivation, whenever you're starting to become angry and tempted to take your eyes off the Lord and to trust in other loves, this is what the Bible says do. It says in those moments, praise God. It says, remember to talk to yourself and give God thanks. Psalm 43 verse 5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you depressed? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you fretting? My hope is in God, for I shall praise him, my God, and my salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great um, exegete and theologian, said whenever he would get depressed and whenever he would become tempted, he would speak to himself. He would grab his heart and his soul by the nape of its neck and talk sense to it. He says, what are you fretting about? Our hope is in God, for He is our salvation. Brothers, when you feel the the pangs of your deprivation, when you start to become depressed and we start looking around trying to find love and satisfaction elsewhere, remember to talk to yourself and praise God for you will only be at rest when you find rest in Him. In love, God is committed to His people. In grace, God draws us to Himself. Now, there's more amazing truths about God that we can learn when we look to the wife, Rachel. Now, as we look to Rachel, just like we saw with Leah, there's many things that we can learn about ourselves, more importantly, that we can learn about God. Now, before we look at those things, let's again look at the emotional context of Rachel. What was she going through? Where was she in, in her place in all of this? Well, even though she was beautiful and she was obviously uh, the favored wife of Jacob, she was ever a bit as miserable as her lowly sister, Leah. right? which is just as another reminder that pretty people have just as many problems as us ugly folks, okay? It's, you know, it's never greener on the other side of the road. They just have different types of weeds over there. Um, I would say, in fact, that Rachel was more miserable than Leah. Now, why do I say that? Well, first off, um, she was far less spiritually minded than Leah. Even though Leah would tumble and fall, um, she did show uh, 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 a God consciousness. She did understand who God was as the covenant God of his people, and she showed a semblance of faith. Rachel doesn't at all. In fact, it's only to the end of her story, after many years, that she even mentioned the covenant name of God. Now think about all the folks who are suffering along the rest of the Christians suffering right now out in the world. Um, with all this pandemic stuff going on. Non-Christians have nothing to lean on. Nothing to have hope in. Can you imagine how miserable that is? Well, that's where Leah was. She had no hope and no faith in God as she was going through all of this. She was she was uh, less spiritually minded, less spiritually conscious than Rachel. Secondly, she was also barren. Now, we know that infertility, um, as as I've talked about before, it, it's it's horrible today, but back then it carried with it Um, very severe uh, feelings of shame and embarrassment in that culture. So she was dealing with that as well. She was also prideful. She was very beautiful. And she has relied on her beauty for many things. It's gotten her far in life. But here, it's not working anymore. Uh, Yeah, she's married. But her husband has another wife. um, So her beauty did not prevent that. Also, it's the other wife that's having all the kids, not her. Her beauty isn't helping her there. So her pride and everything that she had put her stock in is failing her. So her world is coming apart. She has no idea how to navigate this. Uh, Lastly, she's extremely envious of her sister, Leah. More than anything, she wants to have babies. But the reason that she wants to have babies isn't so she can fulfill her lifelong dream of being a kind, covenant mother. And even though she does want to remove her shame, I think that's actually the second reason she wants to have kids. Her main reason to have kids is so that she can be more successful than her sister, Leah. She was extremely envious of her sister. Uh, so she, she's just in this in this miserable place. She has this, she has this giant hole in her heart, and she's doing everything that she can do. To fulfill uh, or, or rather fill that hole and so in order to do that she goes to uh, three different plans she concocts three different self salvation projects uh, she looks to herself and to other things in order to save her to deliver her from shame and in order to help her have success over her sister now these self salvation projects you know we do this all the time through different things by by looking to other people, looking to ourselves and our resources, looking to the world. And, and those three things, that's exactly what uh, what Rachel does here. But of course, as she fails in all those things, as we always do, it's in her flailing about that God has her where he wants her and teaches us all something amazing. But first off, let's take note of these three self-salvation projects that she that she interacts with. First off, we learn that seeking salvation in people will only crush them and devastate you. Now, we see this really in the first two verses of chapter 30. This is when her first plan takes place, when she looks to another person, in this case, Jacob. She says to Jacob, she actually yells at Jacob, Jacob, uh, give me children or I'm going to die. Uh, She has this hole in her heart and she sees salvation being as having children, and she looks to her husband as her savior. Foolish. But notice but notice how desperate she is. Um, she essentially says, I need this. This thing that was never really promised me specifically, I, I, I need this, Jacob, or I'm going to die. Have you ever felt that way before? Of course you have. I have too. That's what we call idols. It's when A a want or a desire of ours uh, gets transformed into a need in our hearts. That's what you call an idol. That becomes, whatever that is, becomes your salvation. And because you've uh, transformed it to being your salvation, this idol, you will do anything to obtain it, even if it means hurting other people, like Rachel does Jacob here. She blames him for all of this. (laughs) Now, nothing works out well, as we know, um, whenever we look to other people for salvation. But just but just look at the results of this plan of hers. First off, Jacob is crushed under the weight of her worship. Uh, Jacob responds in anger. He says, am I in the place of God, Rachel? Now, he, when he says that, he's not being frustrated or incredulous about how she could even imagine that he could help her in this regard because she's barren. But it comes out of a place of, of deep anger. He's being crushed under the weight of her worship. Um, he, he was never meant to be her God, and he's feeling the weight of that. I actually see this in a lot of marital counseling that I do. Sometimes when when, when married folks come in for counseling, they're having issues or having conflict. Oftentimes, it's because one spouse has put the burden of worship on the other spouse, turned them into essentially their God, and they're looking to their spouse to satisfy them. And all that will do is eventually crush their spouse because their spouse can never possibly satisfy them. And that's what Rachel did to Jacob here. And of course, the second result is is that she was devastated because her false God, Jacob, uh, couldn't, meet his end of the bargain. She was completely shattered, which is what happens to us when we worship other people and they let us down. So first off, we see that seeking salvation and people will only crush them and devastate us, which leads her to her second plan. And in this plan, we learn this truth. Seeking salvation in our own resources, or rather within ourselves, is a fool's errand every time. After her first plan went belly up, she then looked to herself and she dipped into her own resources to, to fix the problem. And in this case, the resource was her maidservant, Bilha. And so she looked to Bilha for, for, for help. Now, on the surface, this worked. Bilhah um, gave birth to, to two children and uh, uh, Rachel could count those because of you know the social customs. She could count those children um, as her own, so as on the surface, it looks like this worked. But very quickly, we realized that it didn't work at all. In fact, it only made the problems worse. Now, just look at the devastating uh, results because of this, this second plan. First off, she and Jacob sinned against the Lord. Um, this was socially acceptable, this way of obtaining children, polygamy, and maidservants and concubines. But it was an uh, uh, outright breaking of God's law, his creational mandate um, uh, made clear in the early chapters of Genesis. They sinned against the Lord. And no one does well within their own hearts when they sin against the Lord. And there's no way they're going to get away with it either. God will not be mocked. They have sinned against the high king of heaven. A devastating result. Secondly, this whole plan of Rachel led her sister Leah back into sin. Uh, Leah was doing well with the Lord, but, but Rachel enticed her and brought up jealousy within Leah's heart. And so Leah did the exact same thing that Rachel had done with her servant Zilpah. And so Rachel leads her own sister back into sin. That's what sin does. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. When we sin against other people, apart from God's um, uh, preventive grace, it will lead people to sin against us. So this was devastating. She she led her sister back into sin. Thirdly, though Jacob was certainly not an innocent victim in all of this, he was being treated terribly. Right? He is a patriarch. He is their husband. Right? But essentially, they're treating him as a horse to be sent out to stud. I mean, there's absolutely <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield. There is no respect at all for Jacob. He is being treated as a means to an end, and that's it. No respect, but 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 worst off. Uh, this just makes the problem for Rachel worse. She didn't fill that hole in her heart. It just made that hole deeper. It made the pain deeper because she is sinning against the Lord, and her life is becoming unraveled, um, as it always does when we look to other people or to ourselves for salvation. Uh, but this eventually leads her to the to the craziest scheme in verses 14 through 18. And in that this last plan, we see that seeking salvation in the world will always lead to hopelessness. After her first two plans go uh, belly up, um, she finally looks to the world. And how she looks to the world in this case, and again, this is just evidence of the irrationality of sin and disbelief, but she looks to the world by by putting her hope in the mandrake root. Now, what in the world is the mandrake root? Mandrake roots, well, they looked actually like a human torso, right? Uh, But they're very popular in pagan culture. Um, It was um, essentially thought of to be as an aphrodisiac um, and also a means of making someone uh, more fertile right? So, and she, so, so she saw the opportunity to get these mandrakes, and so she put her hopes in, in, in those things. It's kind of like a superstitious pagan over-the-counter pill that we might be able to find at the gas station, something like that. So she saw the opportunity to put her hope in all these things, and she makes a deal with her sister Leah, and she says, Leah, you know, let me, let me get those mandrakes. I want to have babies like you have, and and, and Leah gives her lip, and so Rachel makes just this crazy deal. Rachel says, Leah, I know that, that my husband hasn't really been sleeping with you lately because he loves me more, but here's the thing. I'll hire him out to you if you give me those mandrakes because I wanna have babies so much. Leah was like, uh, okay, and and that's what happens. The, the deal gets played out, but it doesn't work. In fact, it, it backfires. Leah has two more children Rachel remains barren, the world failed her, as it always does. And brothers, that is just another reminder to us, right? That nothing in this world could ever possibly save us. Whether if it's mandrakes, or the stock market, or better oil prices, a retirement plan with lots of money in it, or even great health, those things cannot save you, truly. How could anything possibly save us that something as so small as a microscopic virus can cause those things to crumble? Placing our hopes in the things of this world to save us and to satisfy us is hopeless, as Rachel found out. So here's Rachel. After seven long years, she comes to the end of her rope. She goes silent. She comes to the end of herself. Everything is hopeless. But that's exactly where God wanted her. This is what she learned and what we need uh, to learn from this whole episode with Rachel. And it's this. Brothers in grace, uh, God remembers his people. He remembers us. As we get to... To verse 22, again, Rachel had finally come to the end of herself. That beautiful, favored wife who up to this point had never mentioned God. Now in desperation, when all of her devices and ploys have failed, cries out to the Lord, uses his name in rescue. And what happens? That's where God wanted her. God hears her. God remembers her. His grace, and in grace, he reaches down into her life to deliver her. He rolls back her reproach, he removes her shame, and he opens her womb. What's really interesting is the verbiage that's attributed to God in verses uh, 22 through 24 is the same words attributed to God in the very important passage for Israel in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, you remember that passage where we read, After their years in Egypt, Israel's cry for a rescue from slavery came up to God, but God heard their cry, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did God do? In his His grace, he reached down into the muck and delivered Israel. And Moses is saying that's exactly what God did with Rachel. Brothers, Rachel was in bondage to her sin. She was in bondage to her shame, but God heard her cries for deliverance. He remembered his covenant of grace. And in grace, he reached down into her life to deliver her. And all of a sudden, the the glorious nature of the grace and the love of the covenant God just dawned on Rachel. She had the film of her eyes peeled back. Her heart was now opened. And with the birth of her first son, uh, she simply says, the Lord has taken away my reproach like nothing else has before. It is the Lord who has taken away my reproach. She uses his covenant name for the first time. And then secondly, she says, and she asked for the Lord for another child. Finally, going to the place she should have gone in the first place for blessing. But brothers, isn't that how it usually is with, with knuckleheads like us and obstinate sinners? That it's only when other loves have failed us that we've turned to the true bridegroom. And it's only when we have fallen to our knees in helplessness that we're finally in a position to look up to the help of the helpless Brothers, both Leah and Rachel were in the far country. They both had their idols. They both had their sins problems. They both had their tendency to run away from the Lord, looking after uh, for other things for help and rescue. But God, who had set his love upon them before the foundation of the world, reached down into their lives to rescue them. They didn't earn it. They didn't achieve it. But God, in his grace, did it. It was by grace alone. And therefore, we can trust him. We can trust this God of grace who is committed to his people and will do anything and everything to bring us closer to himself, even using our our uh, deprivations, even using our failures. We can trust him because he remembers his people. Now, lastly, let's look to Jacob. Now, lastly, and hopefully very quickly, we have Jacob. Now, again, remember, uh, this passage doesn't deal a lot with Jacob. It's more focused on his wives. But even still, Jacob had sin in his life, even more so than his two wives, as we've seen in, in previous weeks. And just like Rachel and Leah in this passage, God needed to get him to a place that he might be broken, a situation that he could not manipulate himself out of, and that's exactly what we find here. God got him where God wanted him. Uh, This situation was completely outside of his control. His wives are out of control. There's nothing he could do to to harness them in. Um, He was still, this is kind of in the background, but he's still being abused by his uh, father-in-law Laban. He's being treated as a slave, uh, uh, most likely. Um, and, And thirdly, though he loved his wife, Rachel, very much, There's not a blessed thing that he could do to alleviate Rachel's pain and problems. Uh, He was helpless. And essentially, God got him to a place where Jacob finally started realizing that Jacob isn't God. Um, And for the most part, he's he's lived that way as if he is. But he's now in this situation where he realizes that, that he's not God. He cannot control everything. And it's actually here that he begins to to really look to God. And this is going to build in subsequent chapters. but, But we see the beginnings of this, right, in that prior conversation that he had with his wife, Rachel, earlier in the chapter. But even still, there's a lot of things that we can learn from the greater story of Jacob. Uh, this text and some of the surrounding passages, there's many things that we can learn in the, uh, in the greater life of Jacob that has everything to do with why you and I can trust God and why we should trust God. So in the greater story of Jacob, the first thing I want us to see, and this is how we're going to conclude, the first thing I want us to see is that um, we can trust the power of God to save. We can trust God and, and his power to save. I mean, it's just simple as that as we've seen the story of Jacob and his and his family. Time and time again, we see in Jacob's life and in his, in his greater family's life that God shows up in power when they are in their weakest moments. God brings life out of dead, broken, barren places time and time again. First off, Jacob learns this a little bit later when he's in his famous wrestling match with God and God breaks his hip And it's there that he starts to finally lean on God and look to God for provision and blessing. That's when his faith reaches its mountaintop where he's trusting in the Lord. But it's in that place of weakness. Rachel learns that lesson here in her infertility. As her mother-in-law, Rebecca, and Jacob's grandmother, Sarah, learned before her. Uh, Time and time again, over and over, God shows up and shows out that his salvation is not the fruit of human ability with a little bit of God's help sprinkled on top, but rather it's by God's power and God's grace from start to finish. We can trust God and his power to save and bless brothers, and it's actually when we begin to trust him that we understand that his grace is more than sufficient and that his power is made perfect in our weakness, but we can trust him. So stop, (laughs) stop trying to save yourself and trust him because he's powerful and mighty to do it. Secondly, we learn that God uh, will supply our every need. We can trust his provision. Um, Most of our sin and our attempts to save ourselves uh, arise out of our fear that God will not provide for us. It arises out of our fear that God will not meet our needs. But what we see every week in the life of Jacob and what the gospel teaches us explicitly, what Jesus says explicitly, is that in Christ we are more loved than we could ever, ever possibly imagine. We're more cared for than we could ever possibly care for ourselves. And what Jacob and his family learn here and what you and I need to uh, to be reminded of more often is that when we seek the kingdom of God, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, when we seek the kingdom of God, when we seek his will and his plan, when we make that priority, when we seek his righteousness, we don't have to worry about everything else. We can simply trust that God will provide for those things. He'll he'll, he'll provide for our deepest needs our our real needs in ways that you and I cannot even possibly imagine. And the assurance that he will, the proof that he will, brothers, is the cross, as Paul says. We, 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 We read this passage last week. That if God did not spare his one and only son, his precious beloved son, if God did not spare him, will he not also graciously give us everything that we need to get home? We can trust his provision. Thirdly, we can trust his plan. His plan for the world and his plan for you and me. We can trust his plan. Even after all of the mess that Jacob and his wives made, even after all of the sinful decisions, the gross decisions, and everything they did to mess everything up, like we said at the very beginning, we see that God will fulfill his promises. God's plan will not be thwarted. And God has made some pretty important promises. He first promised our first parent, Adam, in Genesis 3, that he will redeem the world. And he's going to do it through the promise of the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 12, we spoke about this already. He made a major promise to to Father Abraham, our father in the faith, that it'd be through his heir, his true heir, not Isaac, not Jacob, not his posterity, but who his posterity would lead to, the Messiah. It'd be through the heir that the world would be redeemed. Then we come to Jacob and these and, and this Genesis story of the twelve tribes of Israel and all of this and all of this mess. And what do we see? God fulfill His promises. He, he takes this mess and He brings about twelve kids. And within those 12 kids, we first off, one, have Levi. Levi, who would go on to superintend the, the sacrificial system, the sacrificial system that would point the Old Testament saints to the once and for all sacrifice in the Messiah. Among those 12 kids, we also have Joseph. Joseph, who himself is a Christ figure, a prefigurement to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Joseph, who would be sold into slavery, who would would harvest grain and keep grain and and save his family, his family through whom the Messiah would come. And within these 12 kids, we have Judah, through whom the conquering lion of the tribe would come. Uh, Do you see what this is pointing to? It it, is telling us, brothers, the victory is sealed up. The victory is in hand. No matter uh, no matter what happens in this world, even our own failings cannot thwart God's plan. In fact, those things are just road signs reminding us to seek the Lord because it's God who does all of it in his power and in his grace. We can trust him. Nothing is going to thwart God's kingdom. Nothing is going to thwart his work in you either. His promises to you as his covenant people. I know sometimes as we just look at our lives day by day, it feels as if God's work is like this this tiny little stream that's hardly going anywhere. But make no mistake about it. If you are in Christ, if you've turned to the Lord in spite of your failings, uh, God has promised that he will bring about a completion to the good work he has started in you. Make no doubt about it. By the power of his spirit, God is causing his river of grace to course through you. And day by day, slowly but surely, he's transforming you into the very image of his son. But one day, right, that river is going to to coalesce into this grand body of water, this grand ocean of grace. Where on that day to come when Christ returns and you behold him face to face, you will transform into the twinkling of an eye so that you might be yourself called a little Christ with no more sin, no more, even more temptation to sin, all things made new. And just as this passage ends with the birth of Joseph pointing the original audience to the promised land, you and I are reminded brothers that the true promised land is on the horizon. And if you're in Christ, there's nothing that could ever possibly separate you from the Father's love. He's got you in his grip and he has taken you there. Trust him. Some of us are like Leah. <laughs> We've taken our eyes off the Lord and we're trying to find love and satisfaction in other things. If that's you, God says, stop. He is the true bridegroom. He is the one who will love you more than you've ever been loved. He's the one who will satisfy you. Trust him. Others of us are like Rachel and Jacob. We've run away from the Lord and we're running to other things that we think will save us. If that's you, God says, stop. Stop running to other people or other places for things that only God can give you. Brothers, God alone is our hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone is our hope. Trust him and rest assured that if you are in Christ, he is committed to you. He will continue to listen to you. He will continue to set his eyes upon you. He will continue to remember you. He will continue to love you until you do. And brothers, that is a God that is worthy of our trust. Trust him, amen.